Welcome to Oncology Today, the use of genomic assays in the management of localized breast cancer. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Kevin Kalinsky from Emory University in Atlanta. To begin, Dr. Kalinsky talked about assessing the risks and benefits of systemic therapy in patients with early-stage breast cancer and data from the Taylor X trial. So I'm Kevin Kalinsky, and I am uh, newly at Emory University, where I'm the director of the Glenn Family Breast Center. And Neil, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you today and to talk about genomic assays in early-stage breast cancer. So when we are thinking about treating patients in the early stage setting, just to kind of take a step back, we always think about the risks and benefits. What are the potential adverse effects? What are the potential risks that will be associated with said systemic therapy? And then as part of this conversation, there are important considerations like age, comorbidities, organ function, and then, of course, different prognostic and predictive features. And by that, I'm including things like ER, PR, and HER2, which really influence the kinds of decisions that we think about. But with the advances with genomic assays, in particular, for patients with hormone receptor-positive HER2-negative disease, this has really transformed how we've been treating our patients with early-stage disease. So the question really is, which patients with this subtype of breast cancer, our most common subtype of breast cancer, who's benefiting from giving adjuvant chemotherapy? And a lot of the transformation of utilization of genomic assays from a prospective trial perspective came about with the TaylorX trial. So in TaylorX, patients were randomized using the Oncotype DX recurrence score. If that recurrence score was between 11 to 25, patients were randomized to endocrine therapy alone versus chemotherapy followed by endocrine therapy. And for the low arm, meaning if the recurrence score was less than 11, patients received endocrine therapy by itself. And if the recurrence score was greater than 25, all those patients were recommended to receive chemotherapy followed by endocrine therapy. So the data that Joe Sperano and his colleagues presented, this is back in ASCO 2018, subsequently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, it showed that those patients who were in the recurrence score 0 to 10 arm did extremely well, where they had a 3% distant recurrence risk with endocrine therapy alone at nine years. And those patients who had recurrence score 26 to 100 had a higher risk of recurrence, and that rate was 13% despite giving chemotherapy followed by endocrine therapy. But in terms of the randomization question, how did the patients do if they were in this quote-unquote intermediate risk arm from that 11 to 25, we saw overall there was really no benefit from the addition of chemotherapy. But then in a subsequent exploratory analysis, they saw that there was this differential effect based upon age. Well, those patients who were less than or equal to age 50, that there was a population where if their recurrence score was 16 to 25, where they may benefit from chemotherapy. And again, this was an exploratory analysis. In particular, for that 21 to 25 population, those were the ones who really seemed to benefit in terms of preventing distant recurrence if they were in that particular category. But then in a subsequent publication and presentation, the TaylorX investigators looked at the incorporation of risk, meaning if you were to use how we think about clinical risk as low or high, similar to the way that the MIND Act group did when they were looking at the incorporation of adjuvant online or such risk for determination on the clinical end, that if you look at those patients who were low clinical risk and high clinical risk, again, in this exploratory subgroup of patients, you could see that it was those patients who were high clinical risk 
in the recurrence score 16 to 20 population who were benefiting from the addition of chemotherapy. Those patients who were low clinical risk in recurrence score 16 to 20, again, in this ad hoc analysis, were not really benefiting with the addition of chemotherapy. For recurrence score 21 to 25, both low and high clinical risk seem to be benefiting. And this is really just setting the stage for the way that I think we should be thinking about these genomic assays. That it's not just the assay by itself, but it's also with the incorporation of clinical features, which really help inform and individualize the conversations that we're having with our patients when we're sending genomic assays. So then at San Antonio, and also published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, there was a new tool that is now available, which essentially shows that if you incorporate in this calculation tool features like grade and tumor size and age, and also the genomic assay, meaning specifically the Oncotype DX recurrence score, that helps individualize what the patient's risk is going to be. And what you're seeing on this slide are examples of, well, if you have the same size tumor and you have different grades, you can see that those slopes of those curves change. And the same holds true if you have a grade two tumor that's increasing in how large that tumor is, you can see that the slope changes. And it's just demonstrating how different clinical and pathologic features really may help inform and individualize the risk. And then if you look beyond prognosis and you look at quote-unquote prediction, what this is showing us here, and again, this is from the same RSClin data, is that with increasing recurrence score, that if you're looking at grade. So if you're looking at, for instance, grade one, grade two, grade three, you can see that the higher grade tumors have a higher risk and are more likely to have an absolute benefit from chemotherapy. So this is a tool that I use for my patients when I see them in clinic. I use this almost every clinic where if a patient with a hormone receptor positive HER2 negative, lymph node negative breast cancer. And I'm showing for those who haven't utilized this tool, which only has been available since December, where you put in the Oncotype DX score and you put in the size and the grade and the planned hormonal therapy, and then the age at surgery, you can see that it individualizes the risk of distant recurrence at 10 years. And it also gives you an individualized absolute chemo benefit. But again, the limitations are that this really only applies for those with no negative disease, also understanding that this was developed out of Taylor X and other, at least from the prognostic standpoint, other NACBP studies, for instance, and that the subgroup of patients who are very young, for our very young patients, there's a limited cohort for these patients. And then the other thing is that there's no validation set for prediction from this. So I think one of the questions that we've been wondering is because we see the importance of these assays in patients with lymph node negative disease, like what's the role for patients with lymph node positive disease? And there have been a number of retrospective studies and observational studies, but then also some smaller cohorts that suggested that maybe there was a role for patients, in particular those with N1 disease, meaning one to three lymph nodes. But beyond that, I think we've been waiting for the results of Responder to help determine, well, what's the role in this particular stage and context. So in Responder, this included patients who were 18 years or older, who had hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease with one to three lymph nodes involved. And patients must have been able to receive quote unquote modern chemotherapy with either ataxane and or anthracycline. And just to note, this includes regimens like ACT or TC, but AC was not one of those regimens. And CMF, for instance, was not one of those regimens. And patients must have undergone axillary staging by central lymph node biopsy or axillary lymph node dissection. So if the recurrence score was greater than 25, patients were not followed as part of the study, and they were recommended to receive chemo followed by endocrine therapy. If the recurrence score was zero to 25, 
we randomized 5,000 patients to either chemotherapy followed by endocrine therapy or endocrine therapy alone. And you can see the stratification factors for the study included things like recurrent score category, menopausal status, and the type of axillary surgery that they had. The primary objective of the study was to determine the effect of chemotherapy on invasive disease-free survival in patients who had one to three positive nodes and a recurrence score of 25 or less, and to assess whether the effect depends on the recurrence score, with the hypothesis being that as the recurrence score increased from zero to 25 in the intent-to-treat population, that the chemotherapy benefit would also increase. And what I mean by that is that we thought that the absolute benefit could theoretically be higher if your recurrence score was 22, for instance, compared to if the recurrence score was three. So we had embedded in the study interim analyses. And at the third interim analysis, which was about 50% of the anticipated events, and I do want to mention that we are following these patients for a total of 15 years. The decision was made by the National Cancer Institute, as well as this independent data safety monitoring committee, that we needed to report these data. So in the study, about 50% of patients who were randomized to chemo received docetaxel and cyclophosphamide, either for four or six cycles. And I also just want to state that at six months post-randomization, ovarian function suppression use, either medically or by other means, such as surgery, only about 16% of those in the endocrine therapy alone arm received ovarian function suppression compared to 3% in the chemotherapy followed by endocrine therapy alone arm. So what really prompted the NCI and the Data Safety Monitoring Committee to recommend that we report these data publicly was this analysis, meaning when we look at the interaction between chemotherapy and menopausal status, we saw that based upon menopausal status, there was a difference in terms of what the chemotherapy benefit was in terms of invasive disease-free survival. So I know this is a bit of a busy slide, but I just want to highlight a few things. The majority of patients were non-Hispanic white. A third of patients were premenopausal. A little over than 50% of patients had a recurrence score 14 to 25. A third of patients had central lymph node biopsy alone. About 9% of patients had three nodes involved. Two-thirds had only one node. 65% of patients had grade two tumors. And there were very few patients. It was only about 5% of patients or so who had T3 tumors. The majority were T1 or T2. So to go back to what I was saying in terms of the importance of menopausal status, when you look at the five-year invasive disease-free survival for the post-menopausal group, again, this is two-thirds of the population, these lines fully superimpose. There's no statistically significant IDFS difference. But in the premenopausal group, we did see a five-year invasive disease-free survival absolute difference of about 5.2%. And that hazard ratio is 0.54 and was statistically significant. And what I'm showing below these curves is what those IDFS events were. And just to summarize this, for the postmenopausal patients, the majority of those events were not actually distant recurrences. That was about a quarter of the events. The majority were unrelated things. Those included deaths due to other causes or non-breast primaries. And then ultimately, you know, when we look at the first IDFS event in the postmenopausal group, there was no absolute difference for the postmenopausal group. This is different than the premenopausal group, though, where 50% of those events were distant events. And we saw that numerically speaking, that those patients who received chemo versus those that didn't, again, in the premenopausal group, that there was a numeric difference in distant recurrence as the first site of the event, meaning that's about 3%. So then when we tease this data out just a little bit further, when we look at the forest plots, in the postmenopausal group, we couldn't find any subgroups at this time 
who seem to benefit from the addition of chemotherapy. In the premenopausal group, however, at this time, all subgroups were benefiting from the addition of chemotherapy. And when we look at those patients, again, this was an exploratory analysis. When we do a landmark analysis, meaning looking at six months post-randomization, patients who took ovarian function suppression versus not, for the small subgroup of patients who did ovarian function suppression, there was no statistically significant difference at six months, but we will continue to follow as these data mature. I know I've seen this a bunch. I never thought to really ask about it. When you have a hazard rate that's over one, like you showed before, I think it was 1.79, like how do you convert? We're used to seeing hazard rates that are less than one, and that's easy. If it's 0.4, it's a 60% recurrence. If you have like 1.79, does that mean 21% relative difference? How do you do that? Yeah, I think that's the appropriate way for interpreting that. I just went back to the postmenopausal overall group, and that hazard ratio is 0.97. And I think that one of the criticisms or questions that has come from Responder is, well, you only have five years worth of data, right? Are we early on here? And I think that, one, if you look at the early breast cancer trialist group, the benefit of chemotherapy tends to be within the first five years. And I think the other point to be made is that the postmenopausal group is two-thirds of the population, about 3,300 patients. So ultimately, given how these lines fully superimpose, we really don't anticipate with additional events that this is going to change. This take-home point is going to change. I'm surprised. I don't know. I guess I just didn't see the data presented this way. But the slide that you have with the forest plots. So if you look over on the right, does that mean that the patients who got chemo had a 50% relative risk reduction in general by chemo? Yes. So for the premenopausal group, they had a 50% relative risk reduction. And then if you look in the forest plot, you can see, for instance, if you tease out recurrence score 0 to 13, recurrence score 14 to 25, that relative benefit is the same. But I also think it's important to tease out, well, somebody's risk is higher if they have a recurrence score of 24 compared to if their recurrence score was 5. So the absolute benefit is different. But still, the hazard rate of 0.5, I mean, that's like the hazard rate of chemo to start with, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not minimal. Right. I mean, that's what we're seeing here is that there's this real difference based upon menopausal status. And this is something that as we continue to look through the data now, this hazard ratio for the premenopausal group is remaining around that level. So in conclusion, postmenopausal women, one to three nodes involved in recurrence score zero to 25, based upon the data that we showed in that curve that we talked about, with the median follow-up of five years that we have now, we can conclude that these patients are likely safely able to forego adjuvant chemotherapy without compromising IDFS. And I think that this is impactful because we can think of the fact that this is saving tens of thousands of women the time, expense, side effects that we see that can associate with chemotherapy infusions. This is different than the premenopausal group with one to three nodes involved and that recurrence score zero to 25, where we're seeing that these patients are likely benefiting significantly from chemo. So I think it's helpful just to take a step back and for us to think about the data that have been presented thus far. As I mentioned, we're still awaiting about 50% of the population to experience the events. And I think one of the questions as we have maturity of these data is whether we'll see some changes within the subgroups. For instance, age in the premenopausal group. Will we see as we further classify this, whether any of those subgroups will change? And on the flip hand, in the postmenopausal group, Will we identify any subgroups of patients, again, in an exploratory way, who really may be benefiting 
from the addition of chemotherapy. And I think that that's really the value of the maturity of these data. And as I mentioned, we're following these patients for a total of 15 years. One of the big questions that has come out is, is the benefit that we're seeing from chemotherapy in the premenopausal group exclusively due to this ovarian function suppressive effect, or is it due to other tumor biology? And of course, the study was not designed to specifically answer this question. I do think it begs us as a community to think about whether we're at a point now where we can use a genomically identified population to ask this question of chemo versus ovarian function suppression plus hormonal therapy. Because I think this is another important question as we think about de-escalating or opting out of chemo. I think that this is something that is worth further consideration. I did mention already that at six months, a minority of patients underwent ovarian function suppression. We'll see over time how this changes. One other thing is we did not capture the rate of having pathologically or clinically node-positive breast tumors prior to surgery. I know this is something that's come up in our tumor board, and I imagine is happening in others, this question of if you have somebody who comes in with node-positive breast cancer that's pathologically determined, should we be sending a genomic assay? That's something that we discuss and debate. And then recently, ASCO released some recent guidelines regarding that. And then generalizability things. I mentioned that very few patients, only about 10% had three nodes involved. Around 5% of patients had T3 tumors. And similar to other studies, this study is weighted to having non-Hispanic white patients. And this was something seen in TaylorX as well. The TaylorX group, along those lines, the TaylorX group did have a subsequent paper that was led by Kathy Albane as the first author which demonstrated that Black patients had worse outcome when you look at that intermediate group, recurrence score 11 to 25, compared to other groups, including whites and Asian patients. Again, a minority of patients in Taylor X were Black. And this is something that had been shown in some other previous data about just the inherent biology differences that may exist just based upon race. I think we spend some time thinking about patients with triple negative breast cancer and the higher rates amongst Black patients. But even for patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease, like these are some additional data just supporting that there may be an underlying biology difference just based upon race. I also just want to mention we spent a good amount of time talking about Oncotype DX. Of course, it's not the only genomic assay that is available. These include other assays like Mammaprint. I briefly had mentioned the MindAct trial, which is using a 70-gene assay. There's also EndoPredict, the Prosigna assay, and then also Breast Cancer Index, which is a bit different in terms of how we think about utilizing that assay. That assay, we often think about in the context of whether we want to extend endocrine therapy beyond five years. So I mentioned MindAct. MindAct was updated at ASCO, and then the publication just came out recently with these updated data in Lancet Oncology. So what they showed was that for those patients who were clinically high risk, genomically low risk, and had hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease, when you stratify them by age, you know, similar to what Taylor X did and what I described in terms of this pre versus postmenopausal scenario. So when you look at this population, again, in an exploratory way, you can see that those patients who are aged less than or equal to 50, that they had about a 5% numeric difference in distant metastasis-free survival. But that was not seen for the patients who were age 50 or greater than age 50. And then I also just want to highlight that the genomic assays are not all the same. And these are some work that were done by Sastec and uh, Mitch Dowsett and, and their group that have been published in JAMA Oncology back in 2018, which looked at the TransATAC data set, which has been a very informative data set for a number of things, including testing of genomic assays. And they looked at how 
some of these assays stacked up against each other from years five to 10. So this quote unquote late recurrence period. So they looked at no negative as well as no positive, and they saw that there were differences in terms of how breast cancer index did compared to the recurrence score compared to other assays. So we know that these are not all the same. And this was further proven by a subsequent paper by this group, which showed, again, from TransATAC, that showed that the recurrence score compared to some of the other assays were more strongly being driven by the estrogen module compared to, say, the proliferation module. One of the potential explanations for this is that in the development of the recurrence score, the calculation tool, it's, there's a threshold for proliferation. So that may help explain why we're seeing this difference, but it is something that was noted in this paper. And I did briefly mention the breast cancer index, and this is a slide that I thought was helpful, where you look at the various prospective and retrospective studies that were done, and you looked at how some of those studies were conducted. But ultimately, the take-home point is the same. Some of these just had patients with nodes involved. Some included patients with nodes that were negative. But ultimately, utilizing this test in these studies, if the BCI, the breast cancer index, was H over I high, it seemed to be indicating, well, there was a benefit from extending therapy. And that's demonstrated to the curves on the right. But those patients who are H over I low, which is in the figure is demonstrated in purple, those patients are not so much benefiting from extending endocrine therapy. And this is something that was recently added to NCCN guidelines for node negative and node positive disease, meaning one to three nodes since early 2021. And then I just want to mention, we talked a lot about genomic assays. I think a major problem for this subtype of breast cancer is the issue of late recurrence, right? This is not triple negative breast cancer in terms of the timing of when we see recurrences. We can see recurrences 10, 20 years later. And that was demonstrated in this important paper that was published in 2017, where you can see for those patients with no negative disease demonstrated in yellow, those patients with one to three nodes demonstrated in blue, and those with four or nine lymph nodes, that there's this continued risk that happens after five years. And where I think the field is going is with the utilization of circulating markers. And there have been some interesting data with circulating tumor cells, but also with CT DNA, circulating tumor DNA, where we've seen some prospective retrospective studies in various subtypes of breast cancer, which suggests that this may be an important marker for detection. And we have a sense that, uh, well, this may be important prognostically. And I think you will see in the near future in breast cancer, and our colorectal cancer colleagues are already doing this, where they're looking at said assay and escalating, de-escalating as a result of that. I think we'll see whether there's not only a prognostic implication of having said biomarker, but there may be a predictive one. Like for instance, if we see that said biomarker is decreasing or it, we're having clearance of that marker and what that means in terms of clinical outcome. So I think that this is really where the field is going. So in conclusion, I hope that I demonstrated that there's been significant progress with various quote-unquote de-escalation studies in terms of who really should be benefiting from chemotherapy. We talked about Taylor X, Responder, and I, I briefly mentioned MindAct. And I talked about the premenopausal group and that this really may be an opportunity for us to further refine de-escalation strategies to prevent recurrence for those patients. And then I talked about late recurrence and then potentially utilization of markers to help us determine risk because this is really an unmet need. So just to discuss other notable studies at San Antonio, this was two back-to-back -back studies with our West German colleagues, the ADAPT study, that are related to each other. So the first study that we'll mention were in patients who were quote-unquote higher risk. So these are patients, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative. If patients had were clinically node negative, or had N1 disease and had a recurrence score that was greater than 25, they were randomized to receive four cycles of paclitaxel in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting, or eight cycles of napaclitaxel. 
followed by four cycles of enanthracycline and cyclophosphamide. Also, as one would be eligible for this randomization if one had a recurrence score of 12 to 25 and then and got hormonal therapy, either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor for a couple weeks, then had a biopsy. And if the key 67 was greater than 10%, then they could go on to randomization. And this also, just also to mention, if patients had N2 or N3 disease, they were also eligible for this randomization, or if they had grade 3 disease in a high key 67. But the take-home from this aspect of the ADAPT study is one, they did find a difference in pathologic complete response comparing napaclitaxel to paclitaxel. But the other thing, the thing that I thought was interesting about this study is that when you look at the patients who were eligible based upon recurrence score that was greater than 25, they had a higher PCR, a higher pathologic complete response rate compared to those who were recurrence score 12 to 25, who went on to endocrine therapy for a couple of weeks, had a drop in their key 67. It seemed like those patients, and what's demonstrated here, they had a lower PCR rate compared to those who were just had a recurrence score greater than 25. And what I think this is telling us is that that baseline tissue that if the recurrence score is greater than 25, you're more likely to respond to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So then there was this other part of the ADAPTS study that was presented by Dr. Harbeck and her colleagues, which looked at the population of patients who, again, may have had recurrence score of 12 to 25, went on to hormonal therapy for a couple of weeks, but had a drop of their key 67 of less than 10%. So those patients would go into the endocrine therapy alone arm. And this also happened to include patients who had clinical N0 or N1 disease with recurrence score 0 to 11. And what they showed is when you compare the five-year invasive disease-free survival of those patients with N0 and N1 disease of the 0 to 11 group, that their five-year invasive disease-free survival was similar to those who had recurrence score 12 to 25, but had a drop of their key 67 after a couple weeks on anti-estrogen therapy, where the primary non-inferiority hypothesis was met. So our West German colleagues have other studies in design, uh, including the ADAPT-LATE trial. I had talked about this issue of late recurrence and what we could do to prevent that. So they have a study which is looking at giving endocrine therapy plus or minus giving two years of abemocyclib with the introduction of the abemocyclib being from years three to six from the time that they started their endocrine therapy. So of course, this is a different study than Monarch E, where the patients took their Bemacyclib right after, shortly after surgery. This is looking at starting a bemacyclib a couple years into their endocrine therapy. And you can see some of the objectives and eligibility criteria here, with the primary objective being looking at superiority of invasive disease-free survival. In the eligibility criteria, I just want to mention, can be determined either by high clinical risk, they're looking at high genomic risk, and that can be from various potential genomic assays. And this is an interesting study for us to keep our eyes out for. So just to talk through some of these cases. So these are real cases. I've been at Emory for a little over four months at this point. And these are all cases that I have seen since I joined it at Winship. So the first was a 32-year-old female. She came to me as a second opinion. She had not palpated a breast lesion. But she had a cousin who had premenopausal breast cancer, and it was recommended to her, oh, you should undergo breast imaging, which she did. And at her first screening mammogram, they detected a breast lesion, and they did a subsequent ultrasound and further imaging on that right side, and it was a lesion that was 1.2 centimeters. So that led to a biopsy, which showed a moderately differentiated tumor that was hormone receptor positive and HER2 negative. And she did undergo germline testing given her family history and that was negative. So this is an image from her right breast, which just shows the lesion that was identified. And this is another illustration of 
this particular patient's lesion. And again, you can see by mammography the detection of this. So the patient underwent a mastectomy. Given her strong family history, she opted for a prophylactic mastectomy on the other side, which was really just driven by, I think, the family history, also with her being so young, this happening on her first mammography, all those things. So her tumor, upon further evaluation at the time of surgery, was grade three. It was still a T1C tumor. It was 1.6 centimeters, ER 100%, PR 98%, with a high key 67 of 70%. And this was HER2+, plus and then FISH non-amplified. And there was lymphovascular invasion that was seen. And she had two lymph nodes removed, and those were both negative. So when you incorporate risk, we talked about the RS-CLIN, Oncotype DX score of 16, we put in tumor size, we put in grade, we talk, talk about the kind of hormonal therapy. If we think about tamoxifen and her age at the time of her surgery, her individualized distant recurrence risk at 10 years was 15%, and her individualized absolute chemotherapy benefit was 5%. So in discussion with this patient, you know, I thought this was an a good case to illustrate for a few reasons. I wanted to show the potential utility of RSClin. I also wanted to just highlight, and this was something I talked about with the patient, she's young, she's 32, not so sure how well represented she is in X and other studies that are were used to develop RSClin. So, you know, one of the questions just being the potential utility of sending a genomic assay for somebody who is so young, her risk still with that 5% absolute benefit, still, you know, she was persuaded and was fully on board with doing chemotherapy. And the patient received docetaxel and cyclophosphamide for four cycles. So the second case is a 60-year-old female with no significant past medical history. And she had had a biopsy back in 2005, which was benign. And then she had a mammogram in June of 2019, which was normal. And then there was a little bit of a delay for her next mammogram, just given everything that's been going on in the world with COVID. She was fearful of getting her screening mammogram. But then in January, she was convinced to do so. And this showed a lesion in her left breast that was about nine millimeters on ultrasound. And they did sweep underneath her axilla and did not find any concerning lymph nodes. So she underwent a biopsy. This was a well-differentiated ER 98%, PR 72%, HER2 one-plus tumor with a key 67 of 13%. And the patient ended up having a left partial mastectomy and a central lymph node biopsy. Again, this remained grade one, was 1.8 centimeters, and there was one lymph node involved out of five. And that lymph node was a macrometastasis, right? It met the criteria of being at least, it was over two millimeters, and there was no extranodal extension that was identified. So the patient did undergo testing with an Oncotype DX, and her recurrence score was 11. So based upon responder, we talked about the data for those patients who were postmenopausal. We talked about the forest plots and the fact that we couldn't identify a subgroup of patients who really seemed to be benefiting from the addition of chemotherapy. We discussed that she did not seem to benefit from that particular treatment. So it was recommended that she receive radiation and therapy and then start an aromatase inhibitor. And then the last case that I want to mention there's a 26-year-old woman, no past medical history. In January of 2020, she had noticed a right breast mass. And then given everything that had been going on with COVID, this was not attended to, hadn't really changed. But then over, you know, towards the end of 2020, it seemed to be growing. So she sought medical attention. And in fact, she had a right breast cancer. And then she ended up getting a breast biopsy. This was grade three, a hormone ER positive, PR negative, HER2 negative, but had a key 67 of 70%. And they did note extensive necrosis on the biopsy. So they did a sweep underneath her arm by ultrasonography and identified that there was axillary in involvement and that was biopsy proven. And the patient underwent systemic scans and those were normal. 
So at Emory, we are an iSpy site. And as part of iSpy, part of the criteria for being eligible is utilization of Mammoprint. You have to have a Mammoprint high score at this time. So she underwent Mammoprint testing. It was high risk. And you can see that based upon the score, there was still deemed an absolute chemotherapy benefit. So the patient did just two weeks ago start on the iSpy2 trial. Before we get into some of the new things that have been coming out on the last few years, I'm curious just to sort of go back to the original premise of these genomic predictors, and in particular, why the assays were developed and why the specific variables that were put in in terms of proliferation, ER, et cetera, sort of what the thinking was at the beginning. Yeah. The Oncotype DX score, as you mentioned, looks at 21 different genes, including reference genes, including in that is HER2, right? So that's why this isn't something that's applicable for those HER2 positive tumors. But in the original analyses from the NSABP studies, those with lower risk and those with higher risk, it did seem from those studies that you could discriminate how people, how patients did. It seemed to be important prognostically. And from the prospective studies, and you know, the same was seen also from Kathy Albain's work looking at SWOG8814, where there was this question for patients with no positive disease. Yes, it looked like there was some, some importance prognostically. But the role of these studies like TaylorX and Responder was to then ask the question, well, what is the predictive role? One, is there still an important prognostic implication in a prospective setting? But couldn't this also predict who needs chemotherapy or not? So uh, fast forward to where we've been in the last uh, few years. In particular, now we've seen data from the RX Ponder trial uh, looking at patients with node positive disease. So why don't we sort of begin with that in terms of what that study looked at, what they saw, how it integrated with what we had learned previously with Taylor X. So Responder was a study population that was a higher risk population than TaylorX, TaylorX being patients with node-negative disease, and then Responder being patients with node-positive disease, specifically patients with one to three nodes involved. And both were hormone-included patients with hormone receptor-positive HER2-negative breast cancer. So in Responder, we randomized about 5,000 patients to chemotherapy followed by endocrine therapy versus endocrine therapy alone. And in that study, we embedded interim analyses. And at the third interim analysis, it was determined based upon the fact that we were seeing a differential effect and benefit of chemotherapy comparing pre versus post menopausal patients where the benefit was seen for patients who were premenopausal it was felt like we needed to report these data and i think that these data are consistent with TaylorX one you know we're seeing this benefit specifically based upon premenopausal women slash younger age, meaning age 50 or less. So that's something that we're both seeing in these studies. And they saw this in MindAct as well when they did that exploratory analysis. Where our study somewhat differs is that in Responder, we did not see a recurrence score when we did that classification of 0 to 13 or 14 to 25, where patients were not benefiting with the addition of chemotherapy. For in Taylor X, if the recurrence score was 16 to 25, like that was the population who may benefit from chemo, that we talk about chemo with patients. In Responder, we did not identify yet like a lower threshold of patients who do not benefit from that discussion. So are you saying that even going down to, quote, good risk, there was benefit? So in Responder, we designed the study to ask the question, is there a different relative benefit if your recurrence score is 24 compared to if it was four? And we did not see that there was any difference in the relative benefit. There can be a higher absolute benefit because the patients who have a higher recurrence score are at higher risk. But what I will also say, because you know, as we continue to explore and, and look through the data with a fine comb, that there are patients who have recurrent score zero to 10 
who are still benefiting from the addition of chemotherapy, right, compared to just endocrine therapy alone. So I think that this is where additional follow-up and seeing whether there are any subgroups that can identify that don't benefit, this is important for us to continue to follow because we're following these patients for 15 years. But that's where we're at with these the median of, of five years of follow-up at this time. So another issue, of course, is why you see benefit in premenopausal patients. The thought has been this is ovarian suppression. It makes a lot of sense. But are there other sort of theories? Yeah. So I think that's an important question. And the truth is we can do some hand-waving, but I'm not sure that we really, really know. And of course, there are other issues potentially with just doing ovarian function suppression alone, right? Just their data from Mitch Dowsett and his group, just looking at patients who have higher BMI, who are doing medical ovarian function suppression and taking an aromatase inhibitor, they may not be fully suppressed, which is why I do think that this is a question as a community we really need to think about, to think about doing a study where we're comparing chemotherapy versus ovarian function suppression plus an AI, not only to look at outcomes, but also to look at tolerability and side effects. Because we also know from data, for instance, from soft text, that not everybody's able to tolerate that sort of approach. And we also saw from soft text that the population of patients who had prior chemotherapy were the group of patients who seemed to have the greatest benefit from ovarian function suppression plus giving exemestine. But again, understanding that those patients were patients who were higher risk. So those might have been patients who were just more likely to benefit from that sort of approach. I'm curious in your clinical practice outside of trials, do you offer ovarian suppression or ablation instead of chemo as an option? This is something that I do bring up with patients. I think that in particular, these younger patients, even for the patients, for instance, from Taylor X, who have recurrent score 16 to 20, where we're asking ourselves the question, well, based upon your individualized risk, is it, is it really worth doing chemotherapy? Or do we think we can get mileage out of just doing ovarian function suppression and hormonal therapy? And I think that even before various people saw Responder or Taylor X readout, we had our inherent biases just in terms of what we thought was really driving that chemotherapy benefit. So this is an individualized discussion with the patient. But I do think big picture wise, that this is something that remains a little unclear, which is why doing a prospective study would be incredibly helpful. One of the things that you brought up in your talk that I didn't realize, or somehow when you presented it made me understand a lot better, was why the Data Monitoring Committee wanted the trial reported. Because ironically, a lot of times the Data Monitoring Committee wants, says something to be reported because there's a positive benefit. It sounds like here they were worried that premenopausal women weren't getting chemo. Yeah, it was really both. It was really the postmenopausal group, which was two-thirds of the population. Right. They felt like, oh, can we really wait on reporting this because these patients aren't benefiting from chemo? Can we really wait for the next data safety monitoring committee or wait for another Congress to go by for maturity of the data? thinking about the thousands of patients who would be getting chemotherapy. But then on the flip side, it was that premenopausal group and that hazard ratio that really drove the conversation of reporting the data. Yeah, that was the other thing about your talk that really surprised me. And I don't know if it's because I'd seen these other data sets with positive hazard rates that I didn't know how to interpret. But your slide where you showed, like, it looked like roughly 50% relative risk reduction from chemo in those premenopausal women, which is really the same hazard rate, I think, from the meta-analysis, right, with uh, chemo. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. So that's right. We're, even with some additional follow-up, we're seeing for this premenopausal group that hazard ratio being in that range. The other thing that's come out through the meta-analysis and many other ways is something you also comment on, which is late recurrence. At one time, there was the thinking that some of these assays had more data supporting late recurrence. I never really quite figured that whole thing out. Where do we stand? I know, and I saw uh, you were involved in a conference that specifically focused on a publication on late recurrence, something I've always been fascinated by. 
First of all, anything that we've learned about the biology of late recurrence and what about predictors? Yeah. How much time do we have? (laughs) I think that there may be some differences on the baseline tumor tissue in terms of determination of late recurrence. And let's just say late recurrence from years five to 10. But I also think that this is where the utility of these blood markers will come in. One, I think the, the big question is, when we identify these markers, have patients already escaped dormancy or not? So if somebody's CTC positive or CTC positive and CTDNA negative or vice versa, have we passed the time where we can have an intervention and then improve outcome or are we just past that time period. And I don't think we have the answer for that. We know, for instance, with detection of ctDNA, that there's this median time from development of recurrence of around nine to 12 months. But what we don't know was if we intervene and we give a new therapy, whether we can change that if they're clear and whether we'll improve those outcomes. And I think those are where a lot of studies are going to come in. So, yeah, it's uh, really fascinating to see that the ctDNA studies, we're starting to see these in other solid tumors. There was a big IO adjuvant bladder trial that was negative, and they went back and looked at ctDNA, and when they just picked, pulled those patients out, it was positive. But you also showed the design of a trial that I thought was interesting using delayed abemaciclib, like not right up front. What's the thinking there that... You want to hit, there's something going on later on? Yeah, yeah. Because, so even to take a step back, we've seen some really mixed data in the operable setting with CDK4-6 inhibitors, where Monarch E, we did see this improvement in invasive disease-free survival, but that wasn't seen for Penelope B, as well as for the PALACE study. And there are many questions that we don't know, including the potential just for study design and adherence differences and things like that. You know, given that these are cytostatic drugs, the question is, well, if you intervene maybe around the time that patients are escaping dormancy, maybe you can change that outcome. And I'll also say that within the NCI, you mentioned this meeting that we had in Toronto, this late recurrence meeting, like that was also the genesis of this NCI planning meeting where we've been talking about, well, what kind of intervention studies can we think about? You know, can we think about incorporation of a biomarker and a new drug and testing things for clearance and things like this in this kind of later recurrence type of setting? Because there are other things we don't know about the biomarker. But I wouldn't be surprised if you start to really see a number of studies in this setting, looking at different drugs, looking at different assays, like even for ctDNA, looking at agnostic assays versus like more boutique assays. This is going to be, I think, an area of a lot of future research. We've got this uh, press release out there saying there's a positive Olaparib, the Olympia trial. So I don't, of course, we have to see those data, but maybe we're going to be in a situation where breast cancer patients are going to get some kind of genomic testing, like the way ovarian cancer is right up front. Yeah. And then you've got ctDNA, you've got these genomic assays, but also you've got the hint that maybe HER2 low patients might respond to, for example, TDXD. So I'm wondering, like two, three, five years from now, what the newly diagnosed breast cancer patient, what kind of biomark assays are going to be getting? Yeah, no, I fully agree with you. It's an evolving space, right? Like our utilization of hereditary genomic testing increased, right, for those patients with metastatic HER2-negative disease. So we'll see, as you mentioned, the results of the Olympia study, but now we'll have even potentially a further reason to do that. And you mentioned the continuing changing potential utilization of HER2 antibody drug conjugates. So also, big picture-wise, our redefining of what, when we say triple negative, right now we think of oh, the absence of ERPR2. Can you envision that this is further discriminated and refined? So going back to assays, a couple that have been out there a while that you were referring to a number of times, including the new uh, recurrence tool they have, RX is key 67 and uh, grade. I mean, age-old questions, but I'm just curious nowadays, what do we know about quality control with both of those? I think things like grade 
or even key 67, I think my understanding is we're really good when we think about those that are at either end of the spectrum. It's like the ones that are kind of in the middle, which we don't always have great agreement. And some institutions check key 67, others don't. You know, there've been some international standard efforts to try to standardize key 67. I think that in terms of RS Clin, and this was even seen with some of the initial data from the development of the Oncotype DX test, was just that Gray remained kind of an independent predictor for outcome. So, you know, I think what the RS Clin is really showing us is just not the assay by itself. Right, it's incorporation of these other things like grade, which can help further refine the individualized risk. Yeah, I wonder how widespread is the awareness of RS Clin. I noticed too they have in there what hormonal therapy the patient's getting. So presumably that's in the model, which is you know really cool. Kind of reminds me you have to think a little bit about adjuvant online, which sort of disappeared, but a lot of people remember how valuable it is. But the only thing that I didn't see in there that I always liked about Adjuvant Online, I don't know whether it's just not relevant or not, was the sort of uh, non-cancer mortality. So when you get patients who are 85 and 90, you get a little more granular feel about how you know competing causes of mortality. So I didn't see that in there, but it looks like a lot of the other stuff is very similar yeah. to Adjuvant Online. It looks very valuable. Yeah, I do think it's really helpful. And I think you're highlighting an important thing. Even when we were talking about the responder data, when we look at in the postmenopausal groups, what were really those first events that we're seeing? A good number of those were competing risks, you know, non-cancer related things, which is of course always something we think about when we're thinking about adjuvant therapy. Well, what comorbidities do we have? What other things is the patient at risk for? And is it worth doing chemo or not? That was another thing that you went through in your talk that I wasn't aware of, which was the difference, because we were talking about postmenopausal versus premenopausal in our responder, but I didn't realize there was a difference in the types of events, that you saw more distant recurrences with premenopausal. Any idea why? Yeah, I think that um, what we're showing is the rate, like the ratio of those types of events. So I think because the younger women just don't have other associated comorbidities, things like that, I think that that's why it was more heavily weighted. Oh, that's interesting. When we look at the type of first event, them being distant events. Very interesting. I've got to ask you about one not exactly related issue, but I think important re issue that I've just been hearing about recently, and it just curious what your experience is and it's related to imaging and the vaccine so i'm hearing stories that people are seeing nodes and stuff on imaging including mammography i've heard about things in the breast even in the same size at the vaccinated arm have you seen that clinically and is there any data on that out there yeah, Neil, I actually saw that this week. So I have a patient who I was putting on the iSpy study. And as part of iSpy, patients have to undergo baseline MRIs. So this patient had her second dose about three days before she had her MRI on the contralateral side. So then we saw when we did this MRI, we saw, you know, inflammation, we saw axillary lymph adenopathy on the contralateral side. And they were like, what is this for? Do we need to work this up, et cetera, et cetera. So this is definitely something that's been reported. I've seen some suggestions of, well, if you have a COVID vaccine, you should wait something along the lines of two to six weeks before you are getting your screening mammography. I certainly wouldn't delay this if you have a new breast lesion that you need to do a diagnostic test for. But I think the exact timeline of when, if you have lymphadenopathy, when that's going to diminish, I'm not so sure that that's been fully detailed out yet. What about imaging in other areas, you know, systemic imaging, et cetera, retroperitoneum, anything been reported there? I heard about a melanoma case where there's a mediastinal node they thought was from the vaccine. Do you know anything about that? No, I will say what I've heard and seen has been more like local regional sorts of adenopathy. But it's a good question. It's not something that I've encountered clinically. So just kind of curious. So what are some of the ongoing clinical trials in this arena that you're most excited about? One area, and you talked about it, you're talking a little bit 
that I've always been interested in is the issue of uh, genomic assays in the neoadjuvant setting. I always thought it made a lot of sense. All, you know, all the time they give people you know, with ER positive negative tumors, chemo and doesn't help. And actually we did a survey a couple of years ago. We found about a third of investigators were doing it outside of clinical trial in some situations. What have we learned over the last couple of years about neoadjuvant genomic assays? And do you think that's heading anywhere? I would say at this time, a lot of the studies that have been done with genomic assays in the neoadjuvant setting have been smaller studies. And if you look at, so ASCO released its first neoadjuvant guidelines, and they just mentioned in there that they cautioned against the utilization of these tests, just based of upon the fact that we don't have large studies that are related to outcome. But I do think that even what we saw with the DAD, where we saw that patients who had baseline recurrence score greater than 25 had a higher PCR compared to those with a lower recurrence score. You know, I do think that this does beg that question. And then in terms of other studies, I do want to also highlight that the Optima study is a study that's going on with our European colleagues that's using a different genomic assay. It's using the Prosigna RR assay. The other unique thing about that study is that they're not just looking at N1 disease, that it's also including patients with four to nine nodes involved. So in terms of prospective studies that are looking at tumor genomic assays, that's another study that is ongoing right now. Again, I was just sort of flashing on the old days when we did meetings and we would poll people in the audience. And I had something where I would always do. It was so funny. I would say, we present a clinical scenario, patients that ER positive or two negative. Even better if they have a tumor that the surgeon once shrunk down and, you know, to do breast conserving. And I would put out a poll question that would say, would you do a genomic assay in this situation? And almost everybody would say no. And then I would say, well, the surgeon did one and the recurrence score is low. <laughs> and then they would change what they would do. So they didn't do it, but they changed if they had it. Again, any thoughts? I mean, I'm sure it's very frustrating to give chemo with the idea that it probably won't work. And you see patients going through all this such trauma. Any other clues about when maybe neoadjuvant hormonal therapy could be utilized? There's you know, this strategy uh, that was developed looking at key 67 after hormonal therapy, is that of any value? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this is something I feel like we debate every week at our multidisciplinary conference, right? Because I think the feeling is, why are we not utilizing neoadjuvant endocrine therapy if we have a tumor that's slowly proliferative? Like, do we really think it's going to be benefiting from chemo? And my general approach is to always ask the question, well, what is the intent? Like, what is the intent of giving neoadjuvant treatment, right? You know, we know for triple negative breast cancer and for HER2 positive breast cancer, if patients don't have a PCR, it's important in terms of what we do on the back end in the adjuvant setting. It has treatment implications. When we have a patient with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease, it becomes a little bit grayer. And I always ask the question, is it for downstaging? Is it for downstaging of the breast? Is it for downstaging the axilla? Do we really need a response to do that? Because we know sometimes we get greater responses with neoadjuvant chemo. So that's the kind of conversation that I always like to start out with when we're even thinking about, well, why are we giving treatment? And if we're doing that, what do we want to do? So another thing I was curious about, you've mentioned a number of times other assays. Uh, one of the things in your talk that you, again, you put out there that I hadn't seen before, I didn't realize the MINDEC trial had data breaking down pre- and postmenopausal. That was really interesting. I guess kind of similar observation. Yeah, you know, so that group in an exploratory way also wanted to see after the results from Taylor X came out where they saw that discrimination based upon age 50, just wanted to see numerically whether they were seeing something similar for those patients who had hormone receptor positive for two negative disease that were clinically high risk and low genomically risked. Again, understanding that this is like a subgroup of a subgroup of patients, but ultimately they had very similar findings where it was those patients who were age 50 or less who seemed to be benefiting from chemotherapy in terms of distant metastasis-free survival, whereas those patients over the age of 50 did not. So I, I do think that we're seeing some real consistency across these various genomic assay trials. What do we know about the differences in the various assays that are out there just in terms of internal consistency? I think I remember seeing some data a little while back 
showing that high risk in one assay or low risk in one assay is not always the same, like this non-overlapping bin diagram. Where are we today? And usually people go with who has the data. There's a lot more data with a recurrence score, but sort of beyond that, how much of a difference is it? And I hear other people saying, well, they yeah. all sort of looking at the same thing too. Yeah, yeah. So there's some data that looked at this question in terms of Oncotype, if you had an intermediate score and then didn't mind act. And the purpose of the study wasn't to look at how patients did, but it was looking at decision-making and things like this. And that, those data were published in JAMA Oncology by Hatem Solomon and his group. And, you know, ultimately what they saw was that they're not always consistent. And I think I will say in Responder, we did collect tumor tissue, as well as bank tissue in the axilla, as well as the non-involved lymph nodes. And this may be an opportunity for further testing of other tumor-based tests just to help us further discriminate. You know, Even if we think about the premenopausal group, can we further identify, oh, were these the subgroup of patients who are really benefiting from chemotherapy if we do some additional analyses? So those are ongoing conversations at this time. So one final thing I just kind of was curious about we un unfortunately lost one of the giants in our field, Dr. Jose Baselga. And I was just kind of curious if you have any thoughts about that or any uh, interactions with him in the past. Yeah, I think that he was inarguably a, a luminary in the field. And if you look at all of the things that he did from lab-based science to translating that to clinic, and the impact that he made, it was really significant. And it's a huge loss for the community. And my own personal anecdote is the first time I presented a poster at San Antonio about a thousand years ago. My mentor at the time, Marilyn Moynihan, uh, and she, they had trained together at MSK. He came up to my poster <laughs> and she was like, oh, can you please present this to Jose. And I still remember it because it was like still as a junior person, an incredibly intimidating thing to do. Uh, it was something that he was interested in the PI3K AKT pathway. Of course, he was gracious and all of those things. And I think that uh, it is a loss and it's a loss for many reasons, including, you know, just having somebody who thinks one who's patient focused, but could also think a bit outside the box. And I think that he will be missed. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Kalinsky, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.